Hi, this is Miles Goodwin, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Recently, you got a guitar back from from a guitar you had lost many years ago. Tell me about the relationship between you and your guitars. I have a lot of guitars. That particular guitar was the first real guitar that I ever owned. I bought that in 1968. It's a Gibson Melody Maker. And Gibson is obviously a well-known brand, They're like Fender and Gretsch and, and a few others. And up until then, I'd been you know playing inferior guitars, if you will. Right. So when I moved uh, from Halifax to Cape Breton and joined a band over there, I was there for a while when I ran into somebody that actually had a, a Gibson guitar, and he liked mine. And my guitar was a Hagstrom, uh, three pickups with a lot of buttons and switches on. It looked like I call it a Sputnik. And uh, but he liked the look of it, and it was red and flashy and lots of buttons. So we traded. And uh, I just heard from him just after the guitar was returned. He says, hey, I'm the guy you bought it from. No money exchanged hands. It was a straight trade. And so there, that was my first real guitar, in my opinion. And I customized it. I made it mine, and I played it for years until eventually it was, I thought it was destroyed, but it was actually stolen. So when you picked it up again, did it feel the same? Same. It felt exactly the same, and it feels amazing. Wow. Yeah, it absolutely feels amazing. It, it, it's, uh, it's hard to explain, but it's, uh, it's all neck. If it was a woman, it would be all legs. You know what I mean? It's just, it just has this neck that goes on from, you know, from about here, right, right, like halfway across the room, it seems. It's just all neck joined to this little body of mahogany. It's all mahogany and with rosewood uh, fretboard, as far as I know. It's, and it's very small, and it's very thin, and it's very light. And it resonates beautifully. Even unplugged, it sounds wonderful. You know, it, it really does, which is a sign of a good guitar. And the frets are beautiful on it. They're, they're, they're slightly larger than standard. I changed the pickups in it so it has a different sound. And it's odd because people say to me these days, like, what pickups are in it? And I don't know. I put them in an 868, and I haven't opened her up to take a look <laughs> inside. I've just left her alone for the moment, a little piece it, now that she's home. But, uh, yeah, and I, and I customized, uh, you know, the pickup guard, uh, pick guard on it, which is very unusual. Put a, my name on the bell uh, cover and so forth, and uh, I love it. Did it surprise you, the amount of attention that that reunion got? Between you guitar. and the guitar, yeah. Well, it did because I mean I understand why. I mean I, I just posted on my on my Facebook uh, page that I got my guitar back. That was among my Facebook friends. Right. That's all there was to it. But then, and this was I got I heard I found out that the guitar was fine, and I found out that it was in uh, British Columbia on uh, the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve, if you will. So what a beautiful story already. Mm-hmm. You know, what a, what a gift from Santa. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I had to wait until the, the 31st before it was in my hands because it had to be shipped and everything. And once I had it in my hands and it was real and everything, then I let people know the story, my friends. And, and then on the second, I, 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 you know, I heard from everybody, radio stations, television, every, it was a Monday the 2nd, after the holidays, I guess, whatever the day the 2nd was. But it was the 2nd that all of a sudden the phone was off the hook and people were in my house with cameras at 8, 8.30 in the morning. And I said yes to everything. Right. And they were just taken by the story. What a great way to go into the new year. I think if the exact thing had happened in July, I don't think it would have been <laughs> as big a story. But it is quite remarkable. I mean, it did happen to... Uh, to um, 
uh, you know, Frampton as well. Yeah, yeah. His was 36 years. Mine was a little longer than that. Uh, but it's really quite something when you have a, car, a guitar that you care for so much and it's gone. And, and then to have it back is, is really quite remarkable. And it was exactly the same condition as the last day I saw it, except for one little sticker fell off because it dried up. But the guitar was completely playable. I took it out of the case. I plugged it into an amplifier. I could have walked on stage and performed right then with that guitar. Wow. Yeah, even the strings were ready to go. Everything was ready to go. Tell me about how the love of guitar happened, or how did that start? Love of music and love of guitar. Well, I just grew up, I just grew up in a family that was musical. You know, one side of my family was musical. It was all country down in rural Nova Scotia. Hank Snow and all the like, you know, all that. And my dad loved country music, so that's all I heard. And country music is relatively easy to learn, and it's all basically all guitar Mm -hmm. Orientated, right? It's all it's all the set of the of the of the strumming guitars and everything, and so I was drawn to that and the fact that my family sang and played. One of my uncle was a professional, semi-professional musician that dressed up in that fancy, fancy cowboy clothes, and he went on tour and on in the east down to the eastern uh, uh, coast of the U.S. and Canada and everywhere. And my mother's side. So I got it from there and, and listening and watching at a very young age. And I love music anyway. It spoke to me. And I was born in 1948, you know, and I would say by the time I was eight, nine, I could play and almost anything I heard, you know. And you just learned by yourself. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Because it's not, it's not that hard. Most of it wasn't that hard. So, yeah, I just, that was it, just hearing it around the house and, you know, uh, and, and just being, um, you know, that stuff's been available to me. And, 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 I, and I loved it. Until the Beatles came along, and of course, I remember Elvis in 56, in, in when he came out in 1956 on Ed Sullivan. I was old enough, I was born in 48, I was old enough, I saw that, and I was amazed. So you were more influenced by Elvis, or you were influenced by Elvis well, before Beatles? Yes, it was country music, first of all. I mean, all those old country songs from back in the day, in the, in the, in the 50s, I, 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 those, those were my... Those are my heroes in a way. I mean, I knew them all. I knew Tennessee Ernie Ford through Marty Robbins, through Hank Williams, to Hank Snow. I know all of those guys. You know, I know all of their music. I still know them. I still know those songs. And I can play them. And, I, and, and that was the first musical love for me. And then, and then Pop entered, didn't it, in 56. Elvis introduced this whole thing. So I get, you know, I get into that. I love that. I was smitten with that whole thing. And, and that was magnificent. You know, until he went into the army, and then it went, then, then that whole thing went really down, really south, right, with right. all the Bobbies, the Bobby Vittens, and the Bobby this, and the, of course Bobby Vittens is great. He's Canadian. He's awesome, actually, a really sweet man. But you know, the Bobby Rydells and everybody else, and the Fabians, and everybody that looked good, uh, became a pop star when Elvis went to uh, went to Frankie Avalon, all those people. Uh, and Elvis was never quite the same when he came out of the army. But he, when he was young, and before that. There was, there was some, you know, of course there was something about his music to captivate the, the world, uh, and still does, really. And then it, then it was the Beatles. Right after him, it was the Beatles. The next big thing was the Beatles, and then I became a Beatle baby. I was really at the right age at that point. I was in my mid-teens, you know, growing my hair long, and that's when I started to write, right there. Because I think of you as a songwriter. Mm. How easy did that come to you, writing songs? Well, I don't know how easy it was. Uh, I mean... The first song I ever wrote that was worth anything at all became a big hit for April Wine much later called You Won't Dance With Me, and I wrote that in the mid-60s. Wow. You know, but I wrote some before I wrote that. I don't remember them, but I was trying to write songs and trying to write poetry and all kinds of things, you know, just being an artistic kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was in my blood, uh, but I worked on it, and I didn't sing either, you know. I mean, 
I think of my, I like, I like to think of myself as a songwriter. Right. I mean, you've written and, some great songs. And, and I'm one of those guys that pretty much has to sing his songs. They're not, I don't write the kind of songs that are necessarily uh, songs that everybody wants to cover. They're not that kind of songs. You know, but they, they're hit songs. The 20 million records, you know, 20 million records sold and overall and, and, and a lot of hit records, but they were FM hits and all that other kind of thing. But not, not like a Dan Hill, like sometimes when we touch and then everybody does it, you know. <laughs> I, I'm not that kind of writer. And I, I love Dan. He's become a friend of mine recently. And performing with him at songwriter circles, I'm just so uh, taken back by his, his, uh, his honesty and his music and his lyrics and everything. He's wonderful. Uh, does but, that surprise you, though? I mean, you've written so many songs and so many hits that does it surprise you that some of them haven't been covered as much as maybe you, you would like? Oh, maybe a few, but I, I, my setting is kind of, it's not the kind of writing you cover, I, I, I don't think. I could never be a staff writer for a publishing company or anything. I, I mean, I tried it once and I didn't care for it at all. I tell the story and it's quite true. I said, this, this publishing company back in the day sent, uh, in the early 90s, I guess, was sent a couple of young writers up to, uh, to visit me with the, the idea of writing some songs. And I sent them back after one day. I said, no, this ain't working. So they called me from Toronto and said, why did you send our boys back? I said, because they like everything I do. Hmm. <laughs> and it's true. No matter what he did, oh, that's great. You know, I, I said, I know this is wrong. This, this ain't going to work. So, uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I love writing. I always have enjoyed writing. I've never been in a bar band more than five minutes, so I don't know how to play other people's songs. I'm not really good at learning even my own stuff. I'm not, I don't have the kind of ear that can listen to, uh, I mean, I was in a cover band when I was in high school and things like that, but not professionally. For just a few moments, I was a, otherwise I wrote everything. So I do work with people that did play in bar bands and stuff like that, and, and they'll throw out a song, and they'll, and they'll know it, they'll play it, you know, and I'm just kind of looking at them, how does that go? And I, what, you don't know Smoke on the Water? You've got to be kidding. I said, I don't. I know, but I don't know anything else. I don't know any, any of that stuff. So, I, I'm, and I'm not very good at, I don't have a good ear for learning. So I don't know, maybe that's what in part drove me to writing my own stuff. But I always felt after the Beatles that you should, you know, if you can, write your own stuff. What point did you decide that music is going to be your choice of career? Oh, in 1968. Yeah, because I, I was going to join the Air Force. I had a cousin that was in the Air Force and he would come by our house with a guitar, a Fender Strat Sunburst. I fell in love with that guitar and a little tweed amp and a uniform. And he used to play, he wasn't great, but he used to come in there our living room when he visited and he would leave. And all I could think of was the uniform and the guitar and the <laughs> amplifier. And I said, that's where I'm going. And so I got to a point in my life after high, at high school, at the end of high school, to go to study uh, mechanical drafting and design. I wanted to dry airplanes and all that kind of stuff, the inside, you know, and I had to learn a lot of math and tolerances and all these, because I wanted to, the me mechanical was not a, not an architectural draftsman of any kind, but a mechanical draftsman and designer. So that's what I wanted to do. So I studied for a year, and then the second year, I decided to, this was up at Brantford, Ontario in 67, when I saw Trudeau when he was running for, uh, to be prime minister and won that year. That's when I was there in 67. In 68, I came to Halifax to go into Halifax Vocational to take the second half of this course so I could get into the Air Force. And it was around Christmas time. I went down to the recruiting office and said, you know, in the spring, I'm, I'm all yours, man. It's like, this has been my dream. And, and, it was, and there was two things that stopped me in my tracks. And one of them, I have a heart murmur. I've always had a heart murmur. And, but the, and, and I guess that was the end of it there. But, but they told me, they said that 90, about 90% of all of the drawings and everything else were done by civilians. 
and you probably wouldn't be even in the Air Force. If that's exactly what you wanted to do, you'd probably have to start right. outside of the Air Force because the people in the Air Force were the, the top guys. But all of the work was done by civilians, and I didn't want to sit in a, in a, in a square room down in Water Street in Halifax drawing tea kettles or, or any, anything else. I wanted to, uh, where's my uniform, you know? No uniform. I can't be in the Air Force, are you kidding? Before it all became the Armed Forces, I walked. I, I just quit everything. I just walked away from it. I, was that devastating? No. Well, it was, yeah, it irked me a lot. Yeah, it bothered me. And that's when I said, what am I going to do? And I still hadn't thought of being a musician at all. But you were still playing. I was still playing. And, you know, and I, writing? I, I wrote You Won't Dance With Me and all that stuff. I did all that, but I never considered to be a musician. Uh, but when, when that was taken away, that dream was gone. Then I said, what am I going to do? And I pounded the streets for a while looking for work. And I eventually ended up in a grocery store. Uh, and some guys walked in one day and said, hey, Goodwin, you want to you wanna join a band? And I said, sure. So I was in a band for several months called Squirrel. And from Squirrel, I went to a band down in, in Cape Breton called Eastgate Sanctuary, which is where I bought my Gibson Melody Maker. And then one day when I was sitting th there with the band in this farmhouse down in Inverness, Cape Breton, a car comes up this long dirt driveway and it's a fellow I went to school with and played uh, in a high school band with. He was my neighbor since 1963, Jim Henman. He says, I'm starting a, a band with my cousins, David and Richie Henman, and they don't want to do it unless you're in. And I said, let me think about it. And a week later, I was there, and apparently... <laughs> so what, why is it that they wanted to make sure you were in the band? Like, what Because they, 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 they saw me in, They saw me growing up. They saw me in Woody's Termites. And then what was the goal at that point? Well, it depends on who you talk to, but... Uh, for you? For me, it was always... like We had a meeting, like, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'm not in it unless it's all original material. I, I don't want to know anything about being a cover band. And... And they said, okay, because they weren't sure, you know. They said, that, I said, that's it. We write our own stuff, you know, and, and we'll do it and we'll get better at it, you know. And, and when we think we got enough to interest a record label, well, then we'll pursue that. But I'm not interested in playing the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. You know, I did that in high school. It's got to be all original. So, and that was the purpose. So everybody said, sure. So, you know, you had four guys. Three of us liked to write. So you had four, three very different writers trying to write songs for the first time, mm -hmm. really. So it was pretty horrific, you know? <laughs> and, it's, and if you don't believe me, listen to April Wine 1. <laughs> but even one had a hit, did it It not? did, yeah. I wrote a song called Fast Train. Right, and that did you well. Know, thank heavens, yeah, it did, yeah. It was actually a regional hit right, you know, across the country. And it's still requested all the time, it still gets played. Yeah, yeah. We, that, that was the only thing, though. And, I, and I'm kind of joking to say that they were horrific, but there was, there was no cohesiveness there, you know? Right, right. We were coming from very different directions. David Henman had one direction. Jim Henman had this folky, bluesy kind of a thing, maybe. And then I had a pop sensitivity at that time, right? But this is late 60s, early 70s. Well, our first record came out, uh, well, this is uh, in 1969. Okay, so... We all sat around a table and said, you know, this is what we're going to do. And were you thinking album or were you thinking collection of singles? No, no, albums. No, albums. So, okay. so we left... Uh, we left uh, Nova Scotia on April 1st of 1970. We ended up in Montreal because we had a gig there, so we were told. So we went up there to, uh, and uh, for that show. And we never really left. We, 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 you know, we, we bunkered down and stayed there for years. Right. Uh, but the first April Wine record came out in 71. We went up in 70, got a deal, and the first one called April Wine was released in 1971 with Fast Train. 
And then we were introduced to, well, that was produced by a fellow named Bill Hill, and he was replaced with Ralph Murphy. Uh, you may know Ralph. I mean, Ralph is going to be uh, uh, acknowledged, I think, at the Junos this year. Nice. I was just got a note the other day. I haven't had a chance to really read it carefully, but they want some words from me about Ralph. And Ralph and uh, we did about three albums together. They were a collection of 45s. Actually, before you go there, when the Fast Train became a hit, what was that like for you? When to hear that song first time on the radio? Well, it was it, it was really cool. It was really nice to to you know obviously you know it's 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 it's. It's just like you think it would be. It's like, wow, there's our music. Crank up the radio, and people are calling you and saying, "Hey, I heard your radio, your your music. I heard your song." But things like that. And, Did and you think you'd made it? No, not at all. But you know, it enabled us to do one more. Right. But then they brought in a, a pretty slick producer with Ralph, and he's wonderful. And he he would go off and find these songs, usually in England. You could have been Lady was a song from Hot Chocolate. A Bad Side of the Moon was an Elton John song. Um, Did that bother you when you initially went in and said not really, to... not really. Although I, I, you know, as I say in my book that we were doing just between, uh, it could have been a lady, and there's one part in it where there's breathy na 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 na, and I refused to sing them. Just crossed my arms and said, "Nope, I ain't doing that." So Ralph sang them, na 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 na, really breathy and everything, you know. So that's not you. Ah, that's not me. No, no. I mean, I got I got an offer a little a year or so later to write with. With uh, 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 I did it my way, Frank Sinatra's song, but but uh, from Ottawa, pa Canadian, Paul Anka. Huh? Paul Anka. Excuse me, sorry, Paul. So Paul's office gets a hold of me, say, Miles, Mister Mister Anka would like to write some songs with you, and I said no. I said I don't like what he's writing. He was, and his song right then isn't this awful to say? Uh, but when you're young like that, and I was writing literally writing a song called "Don't Push Me Around." And uh, and that whole album rocked. And he was his big hit number one, I think, was "What a Wonderful Way of Saying You Love Me." You're having my baby. And at that young age, I couldn't relate to a man that was singing all about "You're having my babies." What a wonderful, wonderful way of saying how much you love me. Yeah. And I'm going, you can call me a punk. I like to scrap when I'm drunk, and I'm just likely to cause a scene. So I was, I, I you know, I smelled of attitude. You know, I, I just had it. I reeked it. And that's the way I was. Sorry, was and that I was the way doing, you were always? Or? Way, the, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I was a rocker, you know, that's, and that's why, um, and I was writing all that stuff and playing that stuff at that time with my melody maker, as a matter of fact. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, so then, and, and after a couple of albums with Ralph, I just said, I'm tired of this one, you know, and it was a big formula, everything had to be under three minutes and it had to have... 10 second intro and an outro and all it had to be nice and tidy and neat and fit a format. There had to be a bridge and a chorus and all of this kind of stuff. And I, and I, and, 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 and then I'm watching what's going on in the world. What incredible music was going on in the early mid seventies, all these artists and these albums, you know, the, the who through, I mean, just everybody, every, you know, everybody was creating masterpieces and doing things. And I'm going, nah, 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 with breathies, breathy things. And I'm going, Singing songs I feel nothing for. I mean, I don't even think Elton John and Bernie Tobin has any idea what Bad Side of the Moon means. Hmm. Those lyrics make no sense. <laughs> they don't. Right. They just don't. And that's probably because they never, that's probably why they never had a hit with it. But the You'll fact find that you, it on a record called Friends. Yeah, yeah. I know but, the song. Yeah. But it's not, it's not a song that they're very proud of. But we did it. Yeah. And we did okay with it. But we had our first charted single in the U.S. was 
Uh, you could have been a lady. Did it bother you that um, you set out to write your own songs and here you have two hits with other people's Yeah, material. but we were writing our own songs too. Right. You know, we were writing, uh, I was writing some stuff and I don't remember what, but uh, Tonight's Wonderful Light to Fall in Love, Wouldn't Want to Lose Your Love, some things like that. So I was getting some things off my chest, but I wanted an album. Right. And then in 1975, I said, that's it. I'm going I'm to produce something. And so we did Stand Back. That was 1975. And that just took off. That right. was like double platinum. It was just like crazy. And, and people still hits. consider one of the one of our best albums. <laughs> Did you consider it one of your best albums? Yeah, I still love it. Because what I love about it is, of course, the fact that I, you know, I, I, I did what I wanted to do and it was very successful, that obviously. But also because there's an innocence about that record that it's just remarkable to me. So around that time, or right before that, the CanCon rule was introduced. Yeah. How did you feel about the Canadian content rule? Oh, I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic, you know, and I think that you know, we didn't really have much of an industry. We didn't have, it wasn't just for the artists, but it was for the publishers and the record companies and, the, you know, just for everybody. It, all of a sudden we had a chance to uh, to do something. Uh, you know, up until then we were ignored largely. Do you think... April Wine and yourself benefited from the Canadian Con? I, th I think that the record labels benefited, and I think the publishers did, and the producers, and the studios, and everything else. Uh, as so consequently, we did too. As you know, obviously, uh, these people were able to keep the doors open, the lights on, and, pro and, and go forward as well. And so, bands like us, we were, we were caught up in that wave, and we went along. And I go, how could that not be a good thing? Right. I, I've heard other musicians oh, say. I, I know Brian Adams doesn't like it for one, off the top of my head, but you know, that's. That's his opinion, and he, right. and he came later too. I remember first time I met Brian Adams, he was calling me Mr. Goodwin. We were we were, we presented a Juno way back in the day. I can't remember what year it was, and I was wearing my red sparkle Goya guitar, <laughs> which is iconic from Electric Jewels. Right. And, and he was wearing something or other, and we co-presented. So Mr. Goodwin and all this guy I said, please, but you know he's one of my favorite artists. He's 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 done so well, but. Uh, he doesn't appreciate it, but you know, I think if you were there in the very beginning, you understood the way things were, uh, and not just in a selfish way for the artist, but everybody else, you become kind of like a family, you know. And it's, and I think the support of the government in, in, in assisting that a certain amount of Canadian content is played, uh, and and I've, sadly it took that. Right. You know, I know everything they didn't play wasn't wasn't necessarily. Uh, you know, of the quality, perhaps, of something else. But by, by and large, I think at the end of the day, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of good Canadian music that, got, that had a chance and went on and did well because of all of these things. But do you not think the quality of songs that you wrote would have rose above everything else anyways? Or? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, we had, we, you know, we, we, our success is international, so I can only assume that, yeah, at some point, right? right? So. so when you started, and... This is now, you, you haven't decided that you wanted to be a musician, but you become a musician. What, at what point did you think, this is it, this is what I want to do, this is my career? Well, that's what I say. Like, when, when, I, when, I, when I found out the Air Force wasn't my destiny, then I joined a band, and that's when I knew that this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a musician, you know? And, and then just one band very quickly led to April Wine. One thing after another, before you know it, I was in April Wine at 69. I mean, I was going to be in the Air Force in 68. How fast is that? Yeah, yeah. And then seeing some sort of success yeah, relatively quickly. right out of the chute with Fast Train. Which was also unusual. I mean, part of the reason why Canadian Continental Rules came in was because there wasn't much of a Canadian industry. And at that time, that's when you guys started to 
do quite well. Yeah, because we helped the industry. You know, we did because so I'm led to believe anyway from reading and hearing what people like Donald K. Donald, right. Don Tarleton did with his, with his touring, opening up this whole country. It was with April Wine and bands like us in the very early days. We, we, they bust them in from everywhere. We'd go, we'd go into the most unlikely places, rural places all across the country in the prairies everywhere, and they would bust them from everywhere to come in to an arena or some kind of a community center or some, a high school even sometimes. And, and we just blazed this trail back and forth across Canada in the very early 70s. And uh, before there was a touring circuit or anything else, and, and you know, people like Donald and other people always say that April Wine was one of the, you know, one of the groups that helped pioneer all of that. And I believe it because we were, we were the first out of his stable. He had, you know, Donald K. Donald, who you know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And they had, they had a promotivations, they had Aquarius Records and, uh, and so forth. And they had April Wine, they had Sass Jordan, and they had um, uh, a lot of people, uh, Hart, uh, Corey Hart. And before that, there's a lot of them, you know, but it all came out of Montreal. Right. But Donald was, uh, was uh, a man to be reckoned with. You know, Donald was very powerful and, and he was ambitious and he did very well. We ended up working with the Stones and all, Celine Dion, all kinds of people. Yeah, very, that. very, very successful man. But in the beginning, that's the way it was. Did you have goals? Did you know when you started in the band that you wanted to? Well, I, I, I don't remember having any specific goals. I never for a minute, I don't believe, ever thought I was going to be a, like we're, we were going to be the next Rolling Stones or Beatles or anything like that. I think that's never been a realistic to me. But to make a living and to be good at it and get respect, that was, that was possible. And how did you view, like you had a lot of success in Canada. How, how was April Wine viewed in other parts of the world? Well, that was the, that was the bugger, you know, because it you know it took so long to break there. We had you could have been a lady that lasted a few minutes. You know, we were in the top fifty, forty somewhere. Not much, not much, and we were kind of breaking up at that point. But um, and I don't ask me to get into the, all the details right now. I don't remember that. But you know, we didn't break up. We continued on. The management heard we were talking about disbanding. He said, "Oh, I guess you guys don't realize you got a song in the charts in America." No, we didn't know that. Well, right now it's climbing. You guys are in the top fifty or forty. They were, I think, 38 or something. I said, wow, okay, that's cool. So I put out the fire for a while. But uh, we were tired at this point. We'd been, uh, we'd been doing a lot of crap gigs. But our bands do that. You, do, you go through a lot of stuff. Did you stuff. ever question being a musician? No, no, no. Once I decided to go for it, no, I, I, I never really did. There was nothing else I could do. You know, it's one of those things. You know? right. if, if that's all you can do, what else? you don't have a choice. Okay, so but you wrote some amazing songs, which Thank are you. Canadian classics that are FM classics. Tell me, does any of those songs surprise you in whether, or do any of your songs surprise you in that they did really well, or on the other hand, songs well, that you thought were really good that didn't do well? Well, there's a lot of songs that didn't do well in the beginning where they were doing very well here. I mean, there was one point where they said every one in every three homes in Canada has an April Wine recording of some kind. Right. We started out in eight track and then cassettes and then albums. And then when we on our hiatus, we, I came back and, and, and people wanted me to record with April Wine, so I did. And that's the first time I got a gold CD. CDs weren't even around when I, when I moved to the Bahamas on my hiatus, you know. I came back with the CDs. It was wonderful. The companies, I got to sell the whole catalog again <laughs> in a new format without much expense. But, you know, if, there were some really good songs that weren't doing anything in the States. And it was so frustrating. And I considered the, uh, the, re the management company and all, the whole gang, Donald, all of them, 
fools that that they had something and they didn't know what to do with us. Mm -hmm. And they were signing us to people, companies like London Records. And the rationale was like, well, they're basically they're sinking and they really need a band they can, you know, give all their attention to. This could be a really good thing. Well, they sunk. They were going down and they, and they did. Right. I mean, they're still in the business, but they have a completely different... Uh, I don't know what they do exactly, but I think there's a London record still has something that's that's going on, but it's certainly not, you know, what we were, you know, like signing records and all that kind of stuff, uh, signing artists and so forth. So anyway, um, eventually we did. So that was very frustrating, and 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 and, and I wrote a song called "Electric Jewels," in the hands of fools. Well, the Electric Jewels was us, and the fools was them, right. and the album was called "Electric Jewels." And my red goy is on the cover, you know. And it was all about they have no idea what they're doing. They've got something really good in their hands, and they have no idea what to do with it. I was pissed. And that was Electric Jewels. I think it was even over their heads. It was after I recorded it. It became a hit record. It went platinum that they found out I was singing about them. But at any rate, you know, I went down to Vegas in 77. Now we're doing, you know, we, we're, you know, we're comfortable. New cars, lots of money. Everything's really good, but we're still having cracked the states. And I wrote Roller. On a trip to Las Vegas, and that was it. You know, that opened the doors, and off we went. Right. And how did it go? It was just radio play, or did I know it was on some movies as well, right? Roller. Oh, Roller's been on tons of movies. Geez, it'll be at least at least a couple a couple more this year. Tell me about songwriting, because I just the idea of having hits. I know it's just a matter of fact for you, but that's a neat thing to have. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that to write a song and it becomes a hit. Well. I know what you, what you don't want to do, I think, in my case anyway, is that tr that's try and jump on a bandwagon or do something because it seems to be very popular, if it's a style or something, you know? Like when grunge came in out of Seattle, don't try and write grunge. Right. If you're an April wine, it ain't going to work. And we were kind of pushed in that direction a little bit. You know, why don't you write something like that? You know? right. and, uh, so you have to stay true to yourself. I always find that, that when I write a hit song, because there's a certain, to be a songwriter, it's a craft. Mm -hmm. It's to be learned. So I learned from Ralph, and I learned from people all the way along. I even learned in a, in a, in a band in high school what worked from the response. And you study and listen to the Beatles. Once you, you know, get into somebody like the Beatles and everything else that was going on like I did, then you, you, know, you knew what worked. You heard it. That's one thing. But to be able to do it is quite another, isn't it? And I don't know. I think you have it. I think it's a, besides learning the skill, I think you just have a, a feel for it. You know, I try and write something that makes me happy, and I think that's a big reason why I'm not the kind of I'm not a good staff writer because mm -hmm. I couldn't write something that just didn't sue me. You know, I don't I'm not like that. I'm not a gun for hire. I always kind of write like to write my own things. Like when I wrote the blues album, and I did that over like that whole process took about ten years, and because I was doing other things, I was writing books. I have a couple of books out. I was doing other things, touring a lot, and also. Uh, a lot of the guys like Jack DeKaiser and, 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 and Kenny Blues Boss Wayne and Rick Derringer and all these other friends of mine that are on the record, they have their own lives. So right. I could take a, it would take a very long time for them to get back and then I would stop what I was doing and I'd put it aside for a year or so and I'd get back at it because I knew with the blues, I didn't have to worry about it being contemporary. It was just like the blues is timeless. Tell me how that idea even started. Because I've always liked the blues and, and, and I've, I, I'm not a kind of blues guy that has every record. I'm not like that. I don't, I'm a songwriter and I like songs. Mm -hmm. I like great blues songs. They move me. 
Can and you they, give me some examples? And they, well, The Thrill is Gone, mm-hmm. off the top of my head, is a wonderful composition. It's just a great, great song. Mm-hmm. There are lots of songs like The Hallowed Old, Little Red Rooster, you know, is, to me, is a great, great song. And I had the privilege of knowing Hubert Sumlin before he passed away, too, for a little bit. Uh, wonderful guys. But uh, to me, it was always about the songs. Muddy Waters had great songs. Uh, and I never cared for the songs that were just throwaway lyrics and stuff, you know, just a vehicle to solo. Right. They never interested me. So uh, I even, I, 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 I'm almost embarrassed to say I didn't get into the early blues of Butterfield and all those things that a lot of rock people were into, right. uh, including Clapton, his days, his early days of the blues and all of that. Although there was a lot of that in Cream, and I was very much into Cream. Mm-hmm. But they were a rock fusion blues kind of a band, weren't they? Right. Uh, and uh, so for me, it was all about songwriting. So I said, well, you know, and I have a sensitivity for the blues because I found, I almost died in 07, okay? And I'd already had tendencies to go towards the blues anyway. Like when I, had a, when I got a song, I just naturally, I'd be on the back of the tour bus, just naturally doing a song in a very different way. I mean, it's hard to imagine this as being any kind of bluesy thing, but here's kind of an example that happened sometime before is that there's a Beatles song called Tell Me Why, which is very up and fast and, and poppy. Mm-hmm. When I sat down with the guitar, I played it really slow with blues changes and feel. So instead of go, tell me why she cried, why she lied to me, really poppy, I was going, tell me why, yeah, tell me why the side of said, really slow, boom, boom, just tell me, girl, and I'll apologize. I was doing it really bluesy, because that's the way I feel it. And so I found every time I picked up a guitar, I was going that way. It was like a tide that every time I went in the water, it was pushing me one way all the time. So I decided not to ignore it. And then I get in my head into a concept of writing songs and having blues guys play them because I'm not really a blues player. And, and try and find a way that I could sing them that would work. When you say you're not a, really a blues player, I mean, obviously you're a rock player, but... Yeah. Is the goal at one point to become a blues player? Not at all. Not at all. Interesting. I'm not interested at all. I would rather just have great blues guys, you know, in the band and just let me sing and play guitar too. Right. Because I'm a very, very good rhythm guitar player, I think. And, uh, and, and I can solo and I can, you know, I, I'm, I'm a good guitar player. I've been around a long time. And that April Wine stuff, you know, that's a reflection of what I play. So that guitar playing in April But it's Wine, not blues. Right. But is it influenced by blues? Like where does your guitar solo playing come from? It just, it just comes from rock, I guess. You know, I mean, a little bit of everything we've talked about. A little bit from the Beatles, I suppose. It's all those things. It's just a melting pot. You know, when I grew up, there was so much to absorb. I got the end and the beginning of everything, you know. So when you hear Hubert Sumlin guitar solo, do you get it? Like, do you get that? Like, do you think that's... I wouldn't mind replicating some of that. Well, I don't want to replicate any of that, but I mean, I get it, yeah. You know, and I like the fact that he started with a pick, get rid of the pick, and that's how he found his style. He started playing with his fingers. Right. And he realized that everybody around him, Hallowell says, you know, that's the way you want to play the guitar. That sounds right now. Yeah. So he never went back to a guitar pick, for example. And I like what, I, I like what he does, you know, and, and you know, so I, I, I just, I don't like everything about the blues, but the parts that I do like, I decided to focus on songs, delivery, arrangement, production, production, writing, all of that. And that became Friends of the Blues, you know. 
And I'm, I'm more than halfway through Friends of the Blues, too. And I'm liking this right now. I'm really, it's natural for me as anything. It's very, very natural. And that may stop on a dime one day, but right now it's just flowing. Do you think it's a maturity process? or? I think it's part of it. I think it's a yearning thing inside me that I've had for a long time. Like I say, I've been, you know, one of my favorite blues guys forever is Taj Mahal. I, mm-hmm. I, I found Taj Mahal, discovered Taj Mahal in 1970, a natural blues. I still have his record, and I probably had, you know, at least half of everything he has ever done. And what I admire so much about him is his incredible rhythm, sense of rhythm in his vocals and his playing. He's a superb musician. He's a superb writer and singer and showman. He's got it all to me, oh, Taj sure. Mahal. Yeah, yeah. And there aren't too many people that I can that 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 I like, and there's probably a lot of people I'm not aware of too, right? But he can but, also do way beyond blues, right? Like, I mean. He's always rooted in blues, but yeah. there's stuff that he's done that's... That, that's not. Yeah. yeah and they, when he does stuff with steel drums and like that, he really yeah. goes out there. And when he does do the blues or a take on it, he'll use different kinds of sounds. They're not traditional at all. He'll put his guitar through a chorus or he'll do something unusual, like the steel drums. And for me, it works because the main center of all of that is him. And there's something in him that, that I get, you know, and, and uh, I love him for his adventure. In the same way, some might like, you know, Dylan when he went from, you know, folk to, to electric. Right. It's still Dylan there, the core of it all, you know. And so, uh, I don't know. Taj is a great example. And also, B.B. King, and like I said, Muddy Waters mm-hmm. and Howlin' Wolf, when they sang great songs, and they did. They had, they had great songs. Because what you said is right. I mean, there's a lot of bands, I think, who use blues as a way of, doing guitar solos Mm -hmm. and it's not as much about the song as much as how much can I play on my guitar exactly and that bores me fast I'm not one of those guys that likes to go to a bar you know drink drink enough beer that all of a sudden I think I'm a blues player and get up and you know and jam the blues because that's what happens all the time it used to I haven't been in a bar in years but it used to be that everybody as soon as they you know we're gonna play let's play some blues man and you know they're doing 12 bar blues and they and they suck but you know it's fun yeah, it's yeah. fun doing it, but it's not very real. No, I mean it's such a simple form that yeah. when it's done well, it's amazing. But when it's not, it's horrible. Oh, it's horrible. I, I'll tell you an example. This is what this is in the very, very early days of me planning this project. Uh, uh, Russell, Russell Jackson. Yeah, Russell said to me one day. I brought him into place play stand up uh, stand up bass on one of the songs on the Friends, and uh, he says, "You got to come meet a friend of mine." Kenny Blues Boss Wayne. I said, sure, okay. So we went to this place, and it started off with five guys, four or five guys without Kenny, and they did three or four numbers, blues numbers. And I'm sitting with Russell. I'm going, yeah, that's all right. When Kenny came out, it went to another world, another level, to me. Mm-hmm. It player. really, really honestly did. And I walked out of this learning a big lesson firsthand is that it has to have the magic. There has to be a feel and a magic to it to make, to make it work. Otherwise, it's not worth anything. Those guys were all good players before he came out. They were good. They played all the right notes, and they, were, you know, they had it all, and they did it all. It didn't move me at all. It didn't do anything for me. But his playing, uh, I guess it was his playing. He's not a great singer. You know, he does this, he's stylistic, shall yeah. we say. But his playing is outstanding, isn't it? I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame in America, Boogie Woogie Piano Hall of Fame. He played on a couple of my songs, uh, hey, you till, hey, I'll Hate You Till Death Do His Part, 
with Frank Marino on guitar. <laughs> that was something different. And, and he also plays on Tell Me Where I've Been So I Won't Go There Anymore, which was my nod to Fats Domino. I was a big Fats Domino yeah, he's fan. Huge. Yeah. Big fan, big, big, big fan. And with the 16th on one hand and the, and the walking bass on the, on the right and the, and the walking bass on the left. And if I'm not mistaken, that's where Kenny's from. That's the part of the world that he's from. And he nailed it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, hearing him play was the first time I saw a live blues band that moved me to the point of saying, yeah, I understand now that it has to be special. And Kenny has that. He had it for me that night. So you're doing a showcase tonight with your blues band. Tell me how different you approach this gig than you would your April Wine gigs. Mm-hmm. Is it a different mindset? Or well, is April, it Wine, April Wine, I can do it in my sleep. You know, this, this, this has me quite nervous because I am the kind of person, I know this about me. I need to, te- I have to do something a few times. But you have done it To a few settle times, in. Right? Like, uh, only and very far between. Right. Uh, we have the band as it is right now, is the band. Um, and... We are told we have 30 minutes. We were prepared four songs. Right. And I hope that we get to do four. Um, and we're prepared. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, but I know it's good. So I just have to remember it's good. And these people aren't here to hate you. They're just here. They're just here you know? But you are nervous, even though oh, you spent... Oh, very nervous. Really? I probably won't know my name when I walk on stage. <laughs> so that's, that, that's the thing, you know. It's, 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 it, there's two things that will mess me up. One's fatigue. Right. Like, you know, I want to rest. I want to get a really solid rest before I go downstairs. So I'm awake. Two things happen to me when I'm tired. I lose my pitch. I mean, I'm talking really tired. Right. Not just tired, but really tired. I, 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 can, I can have a problem with my pitch from time to time. And the other thing is concentration. I'll have sing, I'll sing an April Wine song so many times, but then you're just really, really tired from traveling all day. And, and all of a sudden, example, Biggest hit, just between you and me. Mm-hmm. Last verse, stone wall. It's hit a wall, and I'm telling you this one because it's funny. I couldn't think of it. I couldn't. I had to stop the band in front of a big, big place, and said, "Folks, I can't remember. Can you help me out? What's that?" And you know what the words are? That sometimes words are hard to find. That's the first line of the last verse, and the silence can be so unkind. Wow. You know, so I've never forgotten that. And, uh, and so that's the only thing that I would I'd be so tired or so nervous up there that, you know, I, I make, a, make, make a little flub. Uh, but I'm looking forward to the band's good. We've rehearsed it. It should be, a, you know, it should be a nice, nice gig, nice time. And the goal would be to get blues festivals to hire you? I hope so, yeah. It gives us a chance. You know, the fact that it's now nominated for, for Blues Album of the Year... And the Juno Awards, congratulations. Uh, the Junos, yeah. yeah. You know, my first time out at 70, not bad. I'm, I'll take it. Uh, that's all I wanted. Well, that's something I wasn't else. wanting to be, I'd like to win, but I don't expect it. I just wanted to be nominated. That's all I would say to myself, you know, if you can just be acknowledged for all this hard work. I mean, you, I did a good album here. Be nice to get a little, a little nod. And when it came out and the reviewers loved it to death, I mean, everywhere the reviewers are going internationally, you know, saying, wow. And they're all original songs. There's 12 songs. There's only one cover, and that's, and that's a Jesse Winchester's song. I wrote 11 of those songs. And that's what I am, a songwriter. And I found a way to sing them that works. And, and does your approach to singing, does it differ greatly? Very, because, yeah? very different, yeah. 
uh, very different. And how difficult was it to get to that point? Well, it's natural because I was doing it in the back of a tour bus. But, I, you know, doing the back of a tour bus or in your house is one thing. But doing it on the recording, I had to find my way. It didn't take me long. Basically, in a way, my thought was that I want to be able to sing this forever, right? Uh, like with April Wine, there's a song called Roller, and at the end it goes, bye, 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 very, very high octaves. Right. I can still do that. It's very rarely I don't be hit those every single night at my age. you know. But I said, I don't want to start, I don't want a new group of songs that are up there. And they don't sound bluesy up there. Mm -hmm. Let's bring them down. Let's bring them way down. I, I want to sing where I'm talking. Are there April Wine songs that you could convert into more bluesier songs? I have no interest. I mean, I, I don't. Th I don't think so. I mean, there was a couple of things that we have were kind of bluesy. I could. I redid one. The last time I'll ever sing the blues, for you, right. with Rick Derringer, is on Friends of the Blues. I did that some years ago with an April Wine record, but you know, it wasn't really blues and it wasn't really rock. It was somewhere in the middle. So I made it more bluesy. I changed the tempo, lowered the key, got a different feel for it, and uh, it sounds really good. But uh, generally speaking, I don't look back, I look forward, you know. And the processing juices are flowing. So, and Friends too, I have, I'm having so much fun with it. And I don't know if it's going to be accepted at all. Because without talking about it, I'm going to places I, I, I've never quite been before. And I never heard anybody go there either before me. So this could be a real bad idea <laughs> or, or or i could be on to something you know i have to trust myself like i did on the first one and and as you did in your writing it, all all my life i had to trust myself on what, what, what i think is good and i try to you know i try to maintain the essence of friends one and that it is blues and i do have friends help me do it but i'm just having fun with it and i had fun with the first one the songs like cardboard belt you know the character in, in cardboard belt is a very happy lucky you know, girls break out in hives when I leave town, you know, with his seersucker suit and his corduroy vest and whatever it is, and, and, his, and his seersucker suit and his, his, his brand-new cardboard belt. Because I remember way back in the early 60s, before April Wine and all before the Eastgate Sanctuary, when I was pounding the streets looking for work, I worked in this clothing store called Jack's down in Halifax in the water. And, and I sold suits and things like that. And one of, the th one of the things you could buy back in those days, and I don't know about it anymore, but you could buy a really cheap pair of pants that came with a belt. The belt matched the pants. Brown belt, brown pants. And, and so you didn't have to go buy a belt. It came with a belt. But that belt was cardboard. If you forgot to take it off when you put it in the wash, all you go back was the buckle. And, and years later, I'm walking in a parking lot. Well, I'm in the middle of maybe eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. And something shines in the I see glimmer in the sun. I, I walk over and it's a, it's a belt buckle with a little bit of a blue belt that's cardboard. And I hung it on the wall in my recording studio. And I said, I remember those days when I used to get a pair of pants with a cardboard belt. They were the cheapest thing you could get. So I wrote a song. And I remember seersucker suits and I remember uh, corduroy when it was fashionable and all these things. And I wrote this, around this, this character. He doesn't have very much. He has very little. But he's got a big heart. People like him. And it's called Brand New Cardboard Belt. Yeah. So every song I wrote on the blues album, I read, my, one of my favorite writers is um, Steinbeck, John Steinbeck. I love his stuff. I have all his stuff. I read it all several times. And uh, when I wanted to write Weeping Willow Tree Blues, 
I read Steinbeck. 12 Bar Blues, why do I read Steinbeck for? But I wanted to create the feel of what it was like back in the day, my father's day and earlier, that when you had problems, you didn't go to a self-help group, you didn't go online, you didn't go into a bar and get drunk and talk to anybody to friggin' listen, you know, all that pathetic kind of way. You would, you would just man up, you'd, you know, and perhaps you'd go sit under a tree by a river, just talk to yourself and calm yourself down, just find some peace there. And the only other person at that weeping willow tree was a mourning bird, which is M-O-R, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning, as in mourning. Mm -hmm. And there is a mourning bird. I didn't make that word up. There's a mourning bird. And the, the two of them are at this, this weeping willow tree, you know, kind of trying to figure things out. <laughs> and and that's, the, that was, that's the fun of writing to create images and go places with these characters. So now are you strictly writing for blues material now, or do you still write Miles Goodwin songs or April Wine songs? I, I, Miles Goodwin songs is a good way to put it. Like, I'm, I'm, I want to be finishing off Friends of the Blues, but I have another completely different project that I'm about to start with, with other people in a completely different direction. It's a very personal reflection of my, it's about me at my age, and topics that I never really addressed before. So it's a very serious adult album. Is that a difficult and very, thing? And very organic. Is very that, organic, rather. Is that difficult to reveal yourself, or do you feel like you've been doing that throughout your whole life? Well, I think I've been doing it throughout my whole life, and certainly in my memoirs. Uh, but now I think that I'm also aware of things that I wasn't aware of before. And I have this earning to, to explore that. And I have some things that go back a very long way, songs that are like almost 40 years old. Like when my daughter Amber was born, I wrote a song that night when I got back to the house called Forever Amber. And... Uh, and uh, finished it and everything before I went to bed that night. Uh, and, and people in my family have always said to me for years, like, why did you ever release like this? It's so beautiful. It hasn't found a vehicle yet, you know, I don't know. My son, my youngest son, was di diagnosed with diabetes at age six, you know, type one. And that's when we found out that he was diabetic. I mean, I remember the phone call. I remember being in the studio and screaming so loud my throat was sore for a week. I was screaming because I knew he was, what his life was going to be like. No pancreas, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wrote a song called Over the Moon about diabetes for a young person and what it must be like for them. Uh, yeah, stuff like that, you know? And I want to get all that kind of thing off my, sh off my shoulders. And so when you write these songs, and you wrote the song about your daughter 40 years ago, are they recorded? Or is it just in your head? And you it's, all about, it's all in my head. Wow. And every now and then I sit down and play it so I don't forget it. That's the way it works. And you have no... It is for me, you know? But, you know, people are amazed. I mean, here we are, 2019, and you know where I, how I write my stuff when I want to put it down? When I really get serious about the arrangements, I have a two. I have a cassette player, a deck that's ancient. It's a Sony, and you can make copies, two fingers. You have to use the cassette high, high, the high chrome ones, right. which are hard to find. So I collect them. Wow. I've been recording on that thing forever, and I had a full-blown recording studio, and I still do. I I don't do anything in a recording studio because it slows me down. It slows me down to find all those buttons to get this machine turned on and this one over there and just rechannel that. Screw that. I'd rather sit down with a guitar in front of a, a boombox and lay it out complete and then take it to a group of people and say, here's my song, push, my, push that go button, and then we just arrange it. Yeah, that's the way I like to do it because I, I don't like to be slowed down. I think part of the reason I didn't work well with other songwriters in all my life is because they slowed me down too. But how do, you, how do you come to write songs? Is it just, are you inspired or you have a project and you sit down and write? Well, all of those things. Okay. And, you know, for years and years and years, 
As I say, and just between you and me, my memoir is like, there was just deadline after deadline after deadline. You recorded, you toured, you recorded, you toured, which is very common for a lot of us back there. It's not unique to April Wine. Mm -hmm. The thing is, we didn't write as a band, we didn't take any outside songs. I wrote them all, 99% of them, 95% of them. So as soon as we came off the road, it was time to go back in the studio. And as soon as we finished recording, it was back on the road. That's the way it worked for years and years and years. And it burned out, and I just couldn't do anymore in the middle of the 80s. I just walked away from it because I had no time. Uh, but now, I write all the time, you know, and I, I have separate projects. I have one song I'm working on now. I don't want to say much about it, but it's about the indigenous women in Canada that disappear, you know, and in the States as well. It's about 5,000 a year in the U.S. that just disappear or murdered. Right. Indigenous women of all ages. My partner's indigenous, her children, which is an extension of my children, and I know about the prejudice, and I see what's going on. I know it's so wrong, and so I'm working on some, with some very strong people, and we're going to do something. If I ask you how many songs you've written that you haven't recorded, but I, I, you think are good, are there hundreds? Uh, no, no. <laughs> I wish there were. I don't know. No, maybe dozens. You know, I, I, the way I am, and maybe I shouldn't be, uh, but I only, if I, I finish something, I don't keep very, I rarely keep things, bits and pieces. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I and I'm I, I, I'm the laziest, busiest person I know, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I somehow think there's a song in just those words, because I'm really lazy, or maybe it's just my age at seventy. Uh, but I, I'm you know, diabetic, so I get tired. But I I have to get going. I have to keep going, you know. And I look for things to do. So. But you've had so many hits. Was there in most of these cases? Did you write them and think that's going to be a hit? That's a hit for sure. No, no, quite honestly, no. I just, I just, you know, I never wrote like that. I write if I really just like the song, that's enough for me, and I get very excited, you know, when I get when I get a brand new song and it's just me and I'm the first guy to hear it, like I can't sit down. <laughs> I'll pace the tape machine. <laughs> I'll go sit down again for a few minutes and get all excited. Get a go. Like, Damn, that's good. That's good. That's good. Don't forget that. Don't forget it. And so when I have something that I really like. I don't think, oh, this is good, this is a hit. I think, I've got something here I really, really like. That's what matters to me. Right. The rest of it don't matter. What does and with this what? album, I was shopping this album, if anybody said anything to me about it, I'd say, I don't, I don't want to know. What do you think about changing this? Or what about that? I go, no, no, no. It's exactly as it is. Note for note. Or I walk. And I have no interest in compromising anymore. And that's not, that's not ego. That's just, I've been around too long. I don't really have a whole lot to prove. I have more to prove to myself than anybody else. Right. You know what I mean? So for me, it says I just want to write as well as I can and, 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 and finish that project and do the next one while I can, while I'm able to. Okay, so you, you, you mentioned this before about in 2007 that you almost died. How did that affect you? What did that do to you? Well, that changed, that changed the whole ballgame because I, um, I realized my own mortality, which is a cliche, but I did. And I, and I almost died. Absolutely. Matter of fact, I was going to be dead the next day if I hadn't, if you know, if I hadn't passed out on the way to the airport one day, to go get an award, and uh, and, and they got me in three hospitals. And that one day, I was in three different hospitals trying to deal with my issues. It was serious. They said you would have been absolutely dead the next day. I had an internal bleeding coming from my throat. It was awful. I was so beat up from that that I remember looking into the mirror. This is profound and not recognizing me. 
So I beat up from the illness. Hmm. The, the, this, the, the, what happened to me right. in the recovery. I was so thin and uh, emancipated, is that the word? That I didn't see me in the mirror. And I wondered if I ever would again. And what I find profound about it is I shared this with somebody else, and I won't mention his name because you'll know it. People will know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. He, he was gravely sick. As a matter of fact, he, 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 he's not in a good way today. But back then, he recovered from this. And I was talking to him, man. And he said, Miles, I what? Because I looked into the mirror and I didn't see me. And I said, geez, man, I was there. I know what you mean. And he said, I started crying because I don't know if I'll ever see me again. How long did it take for you to see yourself again? Well, now I'm not skinny emancipated anymore. I put on <laughs> more than enough weight. <laughs> uh, but, but was no, it a hard it, road it back? Took, it, it was a hard road back. Yeah, it took a while. It took a few years, you know, I guess. You know, I mean, Walter Trout went through a heavy yeah, thing, didn't he? I yeah. followed that. Walter uh, had to have a kidney replaced mm -hmm. for some reason. I don't, or liver, rather. I don't know what it was. It was hard living or if it was something else. Right. Uh, uh, whatever it was, you must have seen pictures of him at his worst. I mean, he, yes, yeah, it like it bad. didn't look good. It, it was bad, wasn't yeah, it? It was, was really it was, bad. It was awful. And he, he he got a he's got a, a, a he got a liver just in time to save him, and now he's full-bodied, robust, and out there and singing and playing the you know, around the world, and it's a miracle. Mm -hmm. It truly is a miracle. It really is. But yeah. I can guarantee you, my friend, if he was in this room with us right now, he'd have to say something about looking in the mirror. And mm -hmm. not seeing Walter Trout, because that was not Walter Trout on that deathbed, mm -hmm. right before he got that transplant. It was not him. No. And uh, so his producer got a hold of me when he heard Friends when it first came out, and he said, "This is a remarkable album, Miles. I want to get a hold of Walter Trout. Would you like him on your record, your next one?" I said, "Sure." So he got back to me, and I still have the email. He says, "Yeah, Walter's in." That's the head of the the, the uh, <laughs> of the, the, the the thread. Walter's in. Well, it went back and forth, and Walter's not in. <laughs> I don't know where he is right now. He's managed by his wife. They were supposed to get back to me for Friends of the Blues, too. I don't know that he will. But his producer said Walter's in. Yeah. When he first I'm sure him. he would be in. But yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But, you know, the recovery from that led me into deciding that the things I had to do. I had a, I had a list. And one of them was to write my memoirs because so many people in April Wine believe one, the wrong thing about things that happened. So was the list made beforehand, or this was no after this, after my recovery? And like this happened in two thousand seven. By two thousand eight, by two, you know two thousand eight or so, you know I was I was I had a plan of what I wanted to do. I had a couple of books. One of them was the memoirs, so I could just because I never spoke to anybody about anything. Everybody was always talking about what happened, but I never said a word. Right. And I said, well, for my children, I want everybody to know what really happened. Was that a difficult process to go through? It was through? very difficult, yeah. It was very difficult because, you know, a lot of it was, you know, it, it, there's a lot of things about myself that I, that I don't like and, and, I, and I man up. Uh, I lost my mother when, was, when I was 11 to brain cancer. How that affected our family and my dad was brutal, brutal, brutal. I, and that led me to music. I mean, I went right to the music because of the death of my mother. And, you know, I was into music anyway, but when she died... The three boys, my father, we all went off four different directions. Very lonely places that we all went to on our own. Right. And my place was music, you know. But uh, 
Can you talk about what music means to you because of that? Well, uh, well, you know, music has always meant everything to me. That that's really is as simple as that. It's always meant everything to me. I mean, I wrote a couple of books. My second one just came out this summer called Elvis and Tiger. It's all fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an I interesting idea. I don't know that I have another book into me. I don't want to be an author. I did it, I did it twice. One of them went in the bestseller list, and people really liked the uh, the second one as well. So I've done that, and I don't I don't want to start. I don't want to be a writer. I'm working on a on a TV series right now with some very, very, very um, successful people based on a one idea. I'll probably never have a second one. But they all believe this is a terrific idea and should be, uh, well, should, we should follow it through. So I have all of these projects, you know, some of them I share with you already, music, but, but it always comes back to the music for me. It's always about the music, and, well, you know. And I'll keep doing it until, I'm too, until I can't. That's the end of it. I understand why people... Like B.B. King, for example, diabetic, mm-hmm. kept performing right till the end, did it well into his 80s. Yep. What else was he going to do? Sit at home exactly. with Kane? What's he going to do? He wants to be out there and play. God bless him, you know? And I, and I, and I understand why people like Gordon Lightfoot, for example, mm-hmm. still does performances and why the Rolling Stones still play. McCartney still tours the world. It's not because they need the money. We do it because we love music. And we love to play, we love to sing. You know? Thank God for that. Your yes. music represents a soundtrack to my life. So <laughs> it's an honor meeting you. Thank well, you so much yeah, for doing this. Yeah, it was this. nice to meet you too. You made it pleasant. Thank you. Thank you.